2: The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds in envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. Fun show for you. Quick housekeeping before we get there. A very quick request from the folks who made podcasts with me here at Vox Media. We'd love it if you could take a quick survey and tell us just how much you like listening to Recode Media and also other Vox Media podcasts. Can you do that? You can. Great. Go to vox.com/survey. It'll take just a couple minutes, and then I promise you will not have to hear me ask you about it again. I promise. I promise. I promise. Also. This week, Netflix shared a little bit of light about their plans to move into gaming, which you've been hearing about for a few months. Uh, they finally came clean, a little bit. As best as I can tell right now, what they're talking about is, is bundling in some free, casual mobile games into the app. We've tried Apple Arcade. Um, this is seems to be what they're, they're aiming at. Uh, the idea is that when you're not watching Stranger Things or anything else on Netflix, you might go spend some time playing games on Netflix and play, instead of playing games somewhere else. They're not trying to make money from that right now. They think it'll make the app that much stickier. Maybe in theory, it'll make the app that much more attractive to someone who has yet to subscribe to Netflix as they might be bumping their head up against sort of the, the subscriber limit in America, at least. I wonder if that is the full extent of their ambitions. It seems kind of smallish for a company of Netflix's size and near term, I wonder how moving into a completely new form of entertainment is going to distract a company that has always preached single-minded focus. And if you want to hear me, want to read me, you want to hear more of what I have to say about that, you can, it's free. Go to Vox.com slash Recode. I wrote about it this week. Okay, here is a preview of the actual show you're going to listen to. We have now suddenly moved into the deep fake documentary air. It happened just the other day with no advance warning. It's a movie called Roadrunner. It's a film about Anthony Bourdain. The New Yorker's Helen Rosner is going to tell us all about that. And then we're going to hear from one of my favorite media writers, Richard Rushfeld, a longtime Hollywood chronicler. He's got a really acid pen, which is one of the reasons I like him. Um, he's got his own substack called The Ankler, and he's going to give us the straight dope about what's really happening inside the Hollywood C-suites. And also, crucially, why he thinks the newsletter format allows him to be more truthful than he has been able to be in traditional Hollywood publications. Um, We get to that at the end. I think it's an important point and and worth thinking about. Okay, so there's your show. Here it comes. Here's me and Helen Rosner. I'm here with my friend Helen Rosner, who is also an excellent writer at The New Yorker. Welcome, Helen. Hi. As is your want, you have written another viral story. This one is about deep fakes and Anthony Bourdain, um, which is not something I expected to spend any time this summer thinking about. Explain why we are talking about the ethics of deep fakes and artificial intelligence in an Anthony Bourdain documentary.
1: So there's a new Anthony Bourdain documentary called Roadrunner, colon, a film about Anthony Bourdain that uh, premiered in theaters on July 16th, not too long ago. Uh, The director is Morgan Neville, who's an Oscar-winning documentarian. He won the Academy Award for 20 Feet from Stardom. He did that amazing Mr. Rogers documentary a couple of years ago. He's really made a career out of telling the stories of fascinating people who have had kind of titanic roles in our popular culture and... Through his documentaries, he often takes a perspective on them or goes to a degree of intimacy that, that might challenge or in many cases deepen the way that we relate to these figures like Mr. Rogers or Anthony Bourdain. And I spoke to Neville a, a couple weeks before the film's premiere, you know, standard journalistic interviewing, Um and I asked him about a particular line in Roadrunner, which is a very heavy movie. You know, Bourdain killed himself and he was a, a messy, troubled person for his entire life. And it's part of, I think, why people loved him so much and, and part of why the grief after his death has been so extraordinary. Um, but there is a particular moment in the film where almost all of the narration is in Bourdain's own voice because he had such an extensive library of television voiceovers, audiobooks, interviews, things like that. There was a lot for Neville and his team to pull from. But this one moment has him reading out loud an email that he sent to a friend of his where he is expressing a degree of despair. He says, I'm successful, you're successful, but tell me, are you happy? And I was surprised that audio existed of that. I perhaps naively just sort of asked Neville in our conversation, like, hey, how did you find that? Like, did Bourdain, you know, voice memo his emails? Like, I was expecting How did something. you find a
2: recording of Anthony Bourdain reading his email aloud?
1: Right, like, I, I don't know about you, but that's not generally something that I do. Um, and I was surprised by his answer. I mean, he was he was so psyched that I asked it. He said, I'm so glad you asked this. Nobody has asked me about this, and I've been so excited to talk about it. We fed a lot of Bourdain's audio into um, an AI synthetic audio generator run by a software company. And for that email reading, as well as two other specific lines in the movie, we generated a simulation of Bourdain's voice, which then exploded um, and has become a news cycle that seems to show very little sign of slowing down.
2: So this is, he didn't accidentally put Anthony Bourdain's recreated voice into the movie. He spent a lot of time doing it, uh, knew he was doing it. And to be clear, it's not disclosed in the movie, it's only for people like Helen to go, wait a minute, how is this <laughs> happening? So we have been talking about deep fakes on and off for a while, maybe four or five years ago with as Donald Trump was getting ready to be elected. There was a lot of concern about what happens if, you know, we have Barack Obama, we create a fake Barack Obama or Donald Trump and and there's video of them saying it's time to bomb the Russians or whatever. How are we going to grapple with that? Um, we haven't got to that point yet. Um, there's certainly lots of deep fakery that and AI recreations that we are now used to mm-hmm. interacting with. If, you know, Carrie Fisher has been reanimated to be in Star Wars movies, we've seen that. So, we've known this tech can be around. I I guess we haven't really contemplated this version of it, just showing up in a documentary, which is ostensibly a real-life story, without anyone saying, by the way, this thing happening is not actually happening. What did you think about it when he told you, yeah, I made this thing up, or I didn't make it up, I I recreated this voice and didn't tell anyone? What was your initial reaction?
1: Um, I was surprised. You know, I think I... um the best thing any journalist, I think, can hope for in an interview is for someone to say, I'm so glad you asked about this. I haven't been able to talk to anyone about it yet. So I knew something interesting was going to come. Um, I I was a little bit speechless, I think not because I instantly processed, you know, the complex ethics of AI generation and post-mortem voice synthesis, but because it just wasn't what I was expecting to hear. Um and, you know, right away I thought about, you know, I think uh, rereading the transcript, uh, you know, I said something like, well, it's not quite Fred Astaire dancing with a dirt devil. I don't know if you remember, but in, I don't know, 15 or 20 years ago at this point, it's been a while, there was a, an infamous Super Bowl commercial where Fred Astaire, the famous, you know, film dancer and actor from the 50s and 60s, was regenerated using AI to dance with a vacuum cleaner for a commercial to sell vacuum cleaners. And, and there was something... A little ghoulish about that, um, and I felt like the the specifics of this, you know, over uh, working on on the story and putting together the interview, and then I, I wrote a pretty extensive follow up after the kind of ethical outcry that that ensued. I've had a lot of time to think about this and come to my own thoughts about it, and I, I think that um, the lack of disclosure is a little is sort of the the most red of all of the red flags. I think there's a little bit of a A slightly overblown recoil to the fact of this, um, some of which is just due to, you know, context collapse and the way that the internet works and that, you know, this is three specific lines in the movie. And yet, if you were to like look at the trending topic on Twitter, you would think that every single spoken line in the movie was generated by an AI Bourdain and had nothing to do with anything he'd ever written or said himself, when in fact, it's a synthetic audio reading lines that he did actually write. So, the lack of disclosure, I think, is the biggest concern. Um, it was done with consent of his estate. You know, Neville had buy-in from the his literary executor, the executor of his estate, the folks who were in charge of this. So, from a consent. Although you perspective, wrote you wrote a
2: you wrote a follow up piece where it's I actually did. a little muddy about how much consent and knowledge they had. But but to the point, like there maybe there's a difference between if someone recreates Helen's voice and puts it in, in, a, in a podcast or, or documentary and you have consented or you haven't consented, it's one thing, as opposed to a dead person who even if your estate says it's okay, you can't you don't get to weigh in on this. So that's no, one but, you of know, the No, from
1: issues. a legal perspective, and yeah. from a legal perspective, that's what the estate is, right? Like you, when, you're, when you're dead, you can't consent to anything. Yeah, yeah but we're, we're, we're,
2: we're talking about sort of how we feel about <laughs> all of this, right? Not whether Gary Neville, Morgan Neville is gonna of, get sued.
1: Yeah, no, and I think that's part of why this has been so interesting, because there are these channels of like, is it legal, is it ethical? And then this more amorphous thing of just like, is it squicky? Like, does it make us feel weird?
2: I think one of the other issues, right, and this is a bit of a Twitter thing, right, is there's a line from Neville himself in your first story, I'll read it, quote, If you watch the film, other than that line you mentioned, you probably don't know what the other lines are that were spoken by the AI and you're not going to know, Neville said, we can have a documentary ethics panel about it later, right? So that is someone saying not only do I fully know what I'm doing, I kinda know you're gonna get pissed about it and I'm being dismissive about it. And I think that's something both on Twitter, but in real life, strikes, makes people just as uneasy as the lack of disclosure to begin with. Like, fuck you. Uh, I get to decide how I'm telling the story, and I have full control over this, and and I don't and I don't take this stuff that seriously. And again, we're talking about an Anthony Bourdain doc, and it's a couple lines, and the fate of the world doesn't doesn't weigh on anyone's shoulders here. But we can right. you can extrapolate and imagine all versions of this, and I think that is the the very big. Picture right is right. is how are we going to make our way in a world where we already are debating whether something is real or not just because the world is crazy and we've got an entire very large chunk of the United States that believes in a fantasy world. There's no deep fakes involved there. That's just straight up lying. There's no trickery uh, or it's just brute force lying. Mm-hmm. What what happens when we get to the point where this stuff is routinely inserted into our reality without disclosure?
1: Yeah, I mean that that is that is the the big terrifying extrapolation um, and for my follow-up piece I spoke to a couple of AI experts um, one of them Sam Gregory is the program director of witness which is a human rights organization that deals with the ethical, Use of audiovisual, including synthetic AV, and and he told me that you know one of the big projects that Witness is working on is is putting together a set of standards for the appropriate use of synthetic audiovisual, which includes things like consent and disclosure, um, and also equipping consumers of audiovisual, like the audiences, which is basically all of us, to understand cues about when something might be fabricated for political gain or po- political you know malfeasance, um, which is the big worry. But also in smaller cases, I mean, you know, there's, it, it is pretty terrifying to consider that there could be these seamless artificial realities that can be created that exist within, you know, the frame of a recording.
2: Right. I mean, so if, if when, when an ethicist is talking about this, that assume the, the, the idea is that there's a world where people are going to behave ethically. And obviously, if they're not going to behave that way, then it doesn't matter what rules we set up. Um, but I think a lot of this is about, you know, best Practice. I hate saying best practices." You know what but is, is that? What, right? but, no, what, but, reasona- term, but what's a What's a what's a reasonable thing to tell an audience? When can they figure it out on their own? When you're watching a Ken Burns doc about the Civil War, and Mm -hmm. someone is reading aloud a letter, it's quite clear that the person is not reading the letter aloud um, because the letter was written in 1863, and we don't have any debate about that. Um, To me, it seems like this would not have been a big deal for Neville to flag. I'm sure he would be bummed out. It would somehow, like, disrupt the flow. But but in retrospect, if he would have just said, I've recreated Bourdain's voice, we wouldn't Mm -hmm. have this discussion.
1: Right. No, I think that's absolutely the case. And, you know, we've run into these issues of of authentication and falsification before in human history and in technological history. I was thinking about um, sort of infamously Arthur Conan Doyle, the the guy who wrote Sherlock Holmes, um, was taken in by a photographic hoax where some little girls in Victorian England used the relatively new technology of photography to fake the existence of fairies in their gardens. And if you look up these old photos, it's very obviously paper drawings of fairies that have been placed in front of real flowers. Very early Photoshop. yeah, but you know, the technology was new enough that it took people in and they were like, this must be real, this is real.
2: Okay, this is real. I'm Peter Kafka, I can attest to this. this is, and you are Helen Rosner, I think.
1: As far as I can tell.
2: But I'm interacting with you on the internet, so who knows, I hope to see you in real life very soon. Thank you, Helen. Um, your pieces are on The New Yorker and everyone can go read them. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks again to Helen. I love talking to Helen. I always find a reason to have Helen on the show. Uh, in a minute, we're gonna hear from Richard Rushfield, but before that, a word from our sponsor.
0: Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
1: Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him. The sports photographer behind
2: him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? B? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. I'm talking to Richard Rushfield, who I feel like I've been reading forever. I now read him at his own publication, The Ankler, which is a great name. Hey, Richard. Hi, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Um, just to start, what does The Ankler mean? Uh, I know, but to tell our audience why you called your, your incisive Hollywood insidery Uh, newsletter to the Ankler. So the Ankler
3: is uh, what, no, the variety speak. Variety used to have its own Mm -hmm. language that they wrote headlines in. And ankle is the word that they came up with when someone left a company, but it wasn't clear whether they were fired or they quit, they were said to have ankled.
2: Right. It's another version of leaving to spend time with your family. Exactly. But it's a Hollywood speak exactly. version of it. And the reason I'm bringing it up, I just want people who don't know who Richard is or don't know his background to understand that he is giving you a knowing and insidery take on Hollywood. Um, you and I, I just called out Matt Belloni today, uh, Belloni today. Um, who's also putting out a newsletter. You guys are two of my f- current favorite reads because you guys are both inside, and then you also have enough distance to be able to actually say what's actually going on in Hollywood. So thank you for your service. And if you are listening to this and you haven't subscribed to Richard, please go do it. That's my long preamble. Yes, thank you very much. So let's let's talk about some of the news of the moment. Uh, let's start with movies. People are going to see movies in theaters. And every time there's a movie coming out any weekend, there is a discussion about the gross and what it all means. So the current discussion right now is, is Disney's Black Widow, which people saw in theaters and they also streamed at home. What is your understanding of how Hollywood views Black Widow doing pretty well in theaters and pretty well at home at the same time?
3: Well, people are kind of, box office is always like the devil was always in the details, and there's always like a lot of details about the the, the split with the theater owners and first weekend mm-hmm. and who who are all the participating parties and all that. And now you add in streaming, and it's like everyone has tied themselves in knots to just sort of understand: is this a success? Is it not a success? What's the new formula here? But the too long don't uh, didn't read version of all that is uh, it's the first film to be. A giant hit at the theaters and on streaming simultaneously so there's a lot of argument about how how much people watched it and could they have maximized one side or the other a little more but a lot of people seem to have watched it on on both uh sides of the equation which is a sort of paradigm redefining moment for for hollywood
2: Right. So that, that's my question. Is it, Are we redefining the paradigm or is this a one-off because it's Disney and more importantly, it's Marvel? And because we spent the last year and a half, among other things, debating the future of movie going and whether people will be going to movies. And all the studios have tried different things. And there was the Warner Media experiment, which is still going on. We can talk about that. But basically what you kept hearing from the big studios was listen when the pandemic's over we're going back to putting most of our big movies in theaters and that's where we want you to see them so is this are the results of black widow enough to sort of change that discussion you know
3: the, the, the money to be made in a real theatrical release is so potentially huge when you look at these giant temples that sort of expect to make a billion dollars that's that's a lot billion, a lot of money to make up in Subscriptions and also it's sort of a larger question of the theatrical releases are kind of have have always been kind of the loss leader for the whole franchise. That you know, Avengers movie fuels a hundred years of toys and rides and cruise ships and 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 all these other things. So it it, some of them doesn't even matter if they make money at at the theaters because if you keep these franchises vital, it burns off so much other money, and we just haven't seen on streaming anyone create that kind of Goliath that has that sort of momentum across consumer products and rides and every, everything else. So that's been the question here. The thought has the, – the argument that they've been having since they started introducing streaming movies was always like if you break down this 90-day window of exclusivity that the, the, that the theaters had and you allow them to start streaming it uh, at home – the assumption was gonna be that's, that's gonna cannibalize the audience, that, that, that you have a limit, you have you have a thousand people who wanna see a movie and they're gonna see it one place, or if they go see it one place, they don't see it at the other place. And with Black Widow, you can begin to see that that you can look at this and, and, and say, it's not a zero-sum game, that you can expand by offering more ways for people to see it. You can expand the audience and, and each can build
2: its own experience. From afar, from New York, Um, writing with sort of a tech-inflected perspective, it seems to me that a lot of Hollywood would still like things to remain the way they've been for the last X number of years, even though they've complained during the entire time about the movie industry, for different reasons. they like things to remain the way they were in the 90s. Sure. So is it fair to say that people are still resistant to the idea of mainstream movies being consumed first at home, because for a lot of consumers, it seems pretty self-evident that that's a lot that, that many of them would prefer that, or prefer to have the choice at least.
3: Yeah, I, I mean it, it. It breaks down an entire and um, the, the the whole ecosystem. I mean, not 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 just like you know getting besides the thousands of distribution employees that get displaced and all that. Like I say, it's the the whole. System is based on creating these properties that are that are bigger than life, and we're the dream factory. And you know, mm-hmm. when you when you look at what Disney's got, the persistence of these characters, and now you have like people who grew up on Disney princesses, bringing their daughters to see Disney princess movies, and taking entire family vacations to live in this. It's like you know, it's like three, four generations uh, that are dedicated to that, and it really all starts with this experience that people have at the movies and we just haven't seen that a team i mean you look at the netflix film experience where they're certainly giving people what they want you know by the by the uh, truckload um a new movie every week there and you can't you know they made they made a thousand movies now and i think anyone would be hard-pressed to name 10 of them uh mm-hmm. at, after all they've done it. and certainly none of these have spawned a huge Consumer product world, so I mean that that's that's just a fear that you that you dismantle what's what's been the driver of this, and uh, and you just become this this funnel of content that uh, is much less durable.
2: Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I just I'm watching. Again, I'm probably more biased towards tech, but also just watching my kids who are, you know, prime consumer age stuff. They're they're 12 and 13, basically. They loved WandaVision at home. They look forward to each new episode. They don't know who those characters are. or care. It's just a cool experience. And it means as much or as little to them as going to the theater and watching F9, which we also did. It's all just things to do um and it seems to me pretty self-evident that that is that is going to be the future one way or the other that there'll be stuff that you consume on different size screens in different places and as long as it gives you pleasure um you're fine with it and then the industry is going to have to sort of adapt to that
3: i mean that's 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 the flip flip side yeah that that this maybe this is the way the world is going and it's a rear guard action here
2: so which leads me to warner media and discovery and again i'm particularly interested in your your perspective on how the town viewed jason kyler who's (laughs) still running warner media but we don't expect him to be around uh come springtime um when that discovery deal is, is finally done i was always struck by how much vitriol was directed at him that I could see in the trades and even some mainstream reporters that I assume are reflecting Hollywood perspective. What about Jason Kyler running Warner Media upset the town so much? Was it purely his move to move movies to streaming during the pandemic? Or is there something on top of that that they're resistant to?
3: In a lot of ways, he was a sacrificial lamb, that this was something that, that studios have been Breaking down the theatrical window something studios have been wanting to do and trying to do, and none of them had the guts to just take the, the move, move and do it. And uh, and they sent him out to do it, and and, uh, and 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 he he is absorbing the wrath of the world for having done that. The other he he's this guy he comes from you know no no experience in film, the background of building this app on Hulu. Hollywood when, has a lot of people come through who have found the new formula for entertainment. We're, we're, we're going we're to tell you how entertainment is done now. Yes,
2: we, we see with clarity from the outside how screwed up this is, and we're yeah, gonna
3: fix it. exactly. And uh, there's nothing Hollywood lives for more than uh, when, when those people fall on their faces, uh, especially if they are they are young and bright and they come from the tech world. So it was it was it was sort of. Uh, it, it was sort of Hollywood's id against the, the tech invasion uh, personified by Jason there. Um, on the flip side of that, if there was a good way to handle this, he, he certainly didn't find it. The just unveiling it. A studio comes down to relationships with talent. And for all you can have your, your wonderful service and all that. If talent doesn't want to work with you, you're dead in the water. You have nothing. You can rent some uh reruns of Mayberry RFD and sort of show them on your system there. And he and and just to surprise his creatives who had their lives and careers invested in these uh in these releases and and, and let them find out this about is
2: this. Going back to last December when he announced, hey, we're moving all our movies in 2021 to streaming first and and didn't give anyone a heads up.
3: Yeah, and he let all those people who and just, just to get a little more complicated. The, the way movies work people don't get paid a salary they get a piece of the the profits of it with top talent you're not hiring you're not doing work for hire you're taking on partners in this and they just woke up and read in the paper that you're involved in a movie that could be two or five years of your life that potentially that was just wiped out um and to do that without talking
2: to these people and walking them through it was uh you know and telling him in advance, we're going to make you whole for this, which he supposedly has done and seemed quite clear that he was. I mean, the flip side of that was... Had he gone out to the talent and said, here's what we're going to do, some of them would have said, hell no, it certainly would have been leaked. And then and um, and then there'd be a whole bunch of people trying to push him to not do it. And I think if you're him, you think I'm going to get killed one way or the other. I may as well go do it.
3: What a lot of people said to me about this is there was there was a quote from one of the executives like, well, we would have had to call 200 people to, to tell them that. And they like, well, your job is to call 200 people. Then that's mm-hmm. that, that, you know, that's 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 not the hardest thing in a ex- role an executive ever took on so get dial in
2: so when when the discovery deal is announced which essentially brings in david zaslaw from discovery as jason kyler's new boss and everyone expects kyler to leave so much shade and freud about the old media guy pushing out the tech guy and i love a good narrative so i get that but a lot of the things you were describing about kyler specifically no real background in hollywood no no film experience that's also David Zaslav. David Zaslav runs a big reality TV network. He likes moguls and he hangs out with them and he has a big party in in the Hamptons. Um, but he is not a Hollywood person. Is Hollywood deceiving themselves uh, about what the Zaslav era is going to be?
3: Well, for one thing, David Zaslav now, now Jason Kyler having taken all the the heat for this, David Zaslav inherits that and gets to, gets to, he does, he doesn't have to break down the windows now it's done. What was fascinating in, in all the discussion of the uh, of, of the merger and the buyout was movies almost weren't even mentioned. Even five years ago, if someone bought Warner's, like it would have been all about the movies and the, the coverage would have been 90% movies, 5% TV and 5% toys or something. Um, and now it was like movies were not even an afterthought in this, in this conversation. So it's just like they, they've, they've moved, it allows Zaslav to move on and turn the page and, um, and he can basically do whatever he wants with the with the movies at this point, and, and people have sort of, sort of written off that production there.
2: So yeah, it's it's he is taking over a streaming company that has a Hollywood studio attached to it, and that's not going to change no matter who's running it. At least in the the world that we're in now, every media conglomerate is a streaming company, and whatever gets them to be a streaming company is what they'll do.
3: He was he was also much better than than Jason Gyller at like in his announcement his, his first statements he's you know he used the word the the phrase the talent like every other mm-hmm. in every sentence like he like everything was about it's the, whatever what it was all it was all sort of uh giving out buzzwords and and it, there was there was nothing behind it but he was paying homage to the talent uh, over and over and over and over and over again so that's what they want to hear a lot of
2: and Zaslav and his actual boss, who's really John Malone, the the, t- uh, the cable tycoon who owns a huge chunks of Discovery and huge chunks of everything else, have basically said even before this deal is approved that their intent is to the, take the combined Discovery Warner Media and sell that to somebody else, a Comcast or a tech company. I'm not a media mogul, so maybe I'm missing something. It seems to needed to not a, not be a good negotiating strategy to say that you intend to sell the thing right away. <laughs> But also, if I'm in Hollywood, I would think, oh man, we we've had a whole reorg of Warner Media. Now we're going to have another reorg as Discovery comes in, and then the intent is to reorg it again in a couple years when theoretically Apple or Amazon or Comcast buys this. Um, I would be quite nervous if I was someone who was in that business.
3: I, the, the people who work at Warner, I think, are in just a permanent state of shell shock now, of like permanent uh, reorging and 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 no long term strategy and no sense of uh anything except throw everything on the fire of building up hbo max and yeah i mean warner is it's it's on its way to becoming the case study of how to destroy a studio in this if disney is a success story of how to transition to the streaming age warner is becoming the is is fast becoming the cautionary tale all we've heard from zavlov is uh big promises and and catchphrases right now. So we'll we'll see if there what he does behind it. Because we have no idea what his plan is, but it is definitely a company that's completely lost its direction and lost its focus. And uh you know, under AT and destroyed what was one of the what was probably the iconic brand in all of television. And had just, just took a wrecking ball through it. So
2: when you say destroyed, you mean HBO, right? Yes. HBO is still putting out shows that people like me and you watch and talk about, as it always has. It's nestled into this other thing called HBO Max, which is still sort of amorphous, but basically is supposed to be HBO plus things for women. I think is is the is the actual strategy. What what got destroyed? Casey Bloys, who was the programmer who made all the great shows, still is programming HBO. What 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 has been destroyed for me the consumer? The reason that HBO had this following second
3: only I think the second only to Disney as far as a corporate brand goes was it, it was this incredible uh achievement in in curating and developing things and you know lots of creators complained about well it took five years to get a show done at at uh, hbo but i went to hulu and i was on the air in two weeks but you know that kind of meticulous craftsmanship and everything was what made it so that uh, you know you totally unique in 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 tv that people who were devoted to HBO, which is a lot of people would watch every new HBO show that came out. It was just like HBO had a new show and you would check it out. You would you wouldn't, you wouldn't say that about every new AMC show or, or you know. Mm-hmm.
2: It was the gold standard. Yeah. Has it been tarnished? Like what, 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 what about that standard has changed? So, so Are we all still you, talking you about t- Mayor of Easttown? You take them back. Or and, whatever. Yeah, they still
3: do. They still do good shows. And a lot of those were in the pipeline from, you know, dating back from before AT and T even got involved in this, so um, they're still coming along. But when you're suddenly multiplying by ten the the, um, the number of things that you release, uh, they're just out of necessity. They're not you're not going to be so highly curated. Be and I see a lot of HBO premieres just getting ignored right now, and things falling through the cracks, and and the whole branding of HBO Max, like. The, the whole point of HBO was meticulous and, and uh, you know, it's like, like what is Tiffany max? Tiffany's
2: max. Like it's, it,
3: it, it, mm-hmm. it,
2: you can't supersize something that that's all about. Uh, I mean, not to get too gnarly, but Tiffany actually is a, good case of how you actually expand that like there's a reason that tiffany was in malls back when when malls were there and that their their best-selling thing was like a 70 or 90 dollar pendant that anyone could afford uh right not everyone could buy a super fancy ring but there was there was there was this thing that you made you made tiffany's more accessible to more people
3: but you kept up the branding and the illusion that this was mm-hmm. that that this was something very special, and even even if you were getting seventy dollars, you still got the box. They didn't rebrand it in the in the malls as, as something else like mm-hmm. uh, Tiffany Extra, Tiffany Juniors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. yeah,
2: yeah the reason we're having all this discussion is because of netflix right which has turned the world into streaming and everyone is chasing netflix you describe net your your moniker for netflix in your newsletter is the service capital t capital s i love it
3: which is what uh, it's taken what i've told a lot of impl- a lot of their employees uh, yeah. the way
2: they devoutly refer to it so I'm I've picked that up and it is a religious like company uh, we did a whole show about this last year so they are the one company the the one success story where they come outsider comes in and not only doesn't fail but like really succeeds and sort of turns the town upside down what what's the current conventional wisdom about Netflix is it sort of grudging like all right they're here and this is what we're all doing are they still hoping they fall flat Somewhere in between.
3: I mean, they're they're the enormous uh, dominant presence. So while there's still like sort of a uh, uh, a, a lot of uh, animosity for these upstarts, I mean, everybody's eating out of their hand right now. So uh, so no one no one can actually root for them to fail anymore because they, they if if Netflix was hit by an asteroid, you know, LA would would fall into a depression instantly. So they, they I mean they won this period and they you know Ted Sarandos has has very consciously tried to become the new Godfather of Hollywood and uh, and to great extent the institutions have you know he's he's the uh, driving force of the Academy which even though they won't give him the best picture trophy is uh, open their gates to him and they he has parties at his house every night you know but there's also a sense that they're they're much more becoming a in the course of that, they are becoming a much more traditional network now. They're hiring traditional network people. Their uh, their development process, from everything I've heard, is resembles uh, in every way a traditional network development process. They're moving uh, sharply away from kind of the edgy um, tastemaker uh, shows to much more broader mainstream shows. So mm-hmm. it's. Uh, in succeeding, they're coming around to the thing that they that they conquered.
2: They are the establishment. Everyone is doing MA a uh, to try to catch up to them. It, they are not doing M&A. Instead, what they're doing are these they're buying people, right? They they did a huge deal with Shonda Rhimes. Um, they just re-upped that. They've done a couple others that seem less successful. What's the 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 conventional wisdom? I keep saying conventional wisdom. What's the point of view on creators going and doing these mega deals with Netflix or anybody else because that seems like if you were at the top of the food heap you do these you do these large deals and that's how you get paid instead of building a company and selling it
3: well Netflix kind of stopped doing it they made these giant deals and they set the uh, they set the trend for it um, with Ryan Murphy and Sean Rimes, Uh but they haven't done a new one of those in in a few years here and uh, and they unwound their one with Kenya Barris at the but that they mm-hmm. had. So there's a sense that they're having some buyers remorse on these giant deals where you know you they they end up paying 200 million and a huge percent to so much of the of what would be the budget of the show goes to the creators and you know it's mm-hmm. it's essentially redirecting a, a production money to the very top of the of the the chain there
2: there were versions of that preceding netflix right the holding deals and giant deal I mean, if there's a period if you were if you'd ever like delivered coffee to the friend's writer's room you could be paid millions of dollars a year to to develop tv shows oh yeah um, I mean, so that's not new right
3: there's there, there's no there's no business to be in like television if you're a producer of a hit tv show that's always been you know there's nothing money wise. There's nothing like that on. Or even if you're a, a lowly writer on a network TV show, like uh, that's you, you can't compare. But Netflix just added a couple zeros at the end of that and and, and took it to a much higher place. And uh, you know they've they Shonda Rhimes it, it it appears to have paid off with with Bridgerton, which is a giant hit for them. Uh, Ryan Murphy has had a more a much more troubled. Uh, run although they say that his uh, for, for rumblings he's got this mini series about Jeffrey Dahmer that I'm told is they expect they expect great things from so we'll see about that
2: mm, another serial killer story um, if I talk to an executive slash competitor would-be competitor for Netflix they say People want to work with us. I just did this with, um, with the head of uh, AMC the other day. Uh, people want to work with us because it's a curated experience and we can work with them. And when we release something, it's a big deal. And Netflix is like a Walmart. There's just a big pile of stuff there. You don't know how to get through it all. You talk to talent, they say that when you put your show on Netflix more people are going to see it than ever before. And it's by far the gold standard for getting your stuff seen, even if maybe the niceties aren't aren't quite there, like working with an HBO or a Showtime. Do the executives who tell me that, that Netflix is a Walmart, do they believe that? Or is that something they just have to say out loud?
3: I mean, I think they believe it. There's a lot of shows that... So, so talent, um, when talent goes into it, this talent always assumes this thing that I'm doing is going to be a giant success. So... The, of course everyone in the world is going to watch it so where can my giant success find the even bigger audience that it would get everywhere else and right now having a, having a buzzy show on Netflix is the thing like that gets you seen and talked about like nothing else there i mean the, disney is, is sort of catching up in a way hbo still has its niche but but netflix creates this sort of overnight phenomenon like like no one else and and and, and it's, it's global Yes, that too. And it's uh, and everyone assumes that is uh, talent assumes that will be the fate of whatever new thing they're working on, chances are much more likely that when they go onto Netflix and I think the executives can see this some extent that, that this, this new amazing show that they've worked on is going to fall beneath the cracks is not going to explode in popularity and become the thing that that two years later people look back, stumble upon and say like, well was that a show? When did that come out? I, where, where, how did that get here?
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess both things can be true at the same time. I have told you privately I really enjoy your writing um, because it is both knowing and has the right amount of acid that I <laughs> like. Um, and I'm wondering whether this is something that you think is specific to the fact that you're doing this in a newsletter for subscribers as opposed to, you've written for a lot of places, but this is not a trade publication. It's not the New York Times. It's its own thing. And I'm wondering what your experience writing a, a subscriber-only newsletter for Hollywood Insiders has been like and how it affects your writing. I mean, it's
3: just been tremendously liberating. If you do any writing about Hollywood for the trades or any, uh, I, I've, I've written for everything of, over my time from Yahoo to Gawker to uh, to the LA Times. And anything you write about Hollywood it is like trying to get an a, a appropriations bill through Congress. It's like you've you've got you've got so many people you can't upset and and deals and understandings and everyone is going to call and yell at you and it's it's uh, it, it is uh, by the time the story makes it to the page you're lucky if ten percent of what you originally thought of is out there and uh, doing a newsletter which is all just you know entirely funded by the subscribers I just. Write whatever I think, and when I, when I first started doing it, I, I had moments where I, I, I sort of wrote. It was like, "Whoa, I'm not allowed to say that. I, the ceiling will fall in on me, and everything." And I had to remind myself, "Oh yeah, you're we are still allowed to just write what we think in this country, and, uh, and,
2: and even about Hollywood." You're doing a Substack now. Prior to that, it was Survey Monkey. P-p- presumably, you're not Survey Monkey, Mailchimp. Some kind of monkey. Um, (laughs) But presumably the audience is the same though, right? Like the people who'd get, who would yell at you or pay people to yell at you when you wrote something in a trade or an LA times or a, or a Yahoo, they're the ones reading you and paying for you now as a, as a newsletter writer. So what's the disconnect or maybe they're not, or or is it a different audience? No, it's, it's, I I, I would say my audience is
3: 90% sort of entertainment executives. The difference is they have no leverage over me. I take ads that sort of fall in over the transom, but I don't, uh, I don't solicit them, and it's a small part of my, my budget. So it, it, I don't care if they get canceled, and I never, never have conversations about them. Uh, and beyond that, if you're running for a trade, the number of things that a studio can threaten you with like withholding their, their star from a cover, withholding their executive from a cover, not giving you the scoops, mm-hmm. not not letting your people at the junkets, not letting your people at the hearing, taking the ads away, taking the... I mean, it, it is so enmeshed. Uh, now they can say they'll, they'll cancel my their subscription, and uh, that, that, that will cost me $90, uh, which I'll gladly refund anybody who wants their money back. And... Uh, and, and that's, that's all they've got on me. And it, it's amazing that I started doing it. But I was, I was braced for the, uh, the calls of people screaming at me, which is what you get. Uh, when you work at a trade, when you write a story about a, a deal, like if you put the names in the wrong order, it's like the fires of hell open up on you and, uh, they don't even bother to call and yell at me now because they, they've got nothing to threaten me with.
2: So it's not my imagination. It, the model actually creates different content. Selling stuff for subscribers, even though they're the same readers that they are in the trades, allows you to do something different. Absolutely.
3: I am back to uh, the origins of journalism where my boss is my readers and, and no one else. Giving the readers something valuable to them uh, is the only thing I have to think about. I
2: love it. And then we're going to leave on an up note because that's yeah. positive. I like that version of journalism. Richard Rushfield, great to meet you. Subscribe to Richard's newsletter, The Ankler. Thanks, Richard. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks again to Helen and to Richard and to Joel and Jelani for editing, producing, and our sponsors, and you guys. You're all great. We're going to see you next week. Thanks.